in your Bibles, the book of Matthew, chapter 27. Matthew, chapter 27. And as soon as you find it, stand to your feet with me, and we will read from God's Word together today. Matthew 27. And I'll begin reading in verse 1. I know the slide says something different, but I changed my mind. Okay. Matthew 27, verse 1. When the morning was come, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Verse 11. And Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, You say, or you say that I am. And when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. And then Pilate said unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against you? And he answered him, Never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. Verse 19. When he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have nothing to do with this just man. For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. But the chief priest and the elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And the governor answered and said unto them, Whither of the two will you that I release unto you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said unto them, What shall I do with Jesus then who is called Christ? They all said unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Well, what evil hath he done? And they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. And then answered all the people and said, one of the saddest statements ever made in history, his blood be on us and on our children. Thank you, and you may be seated. Fifty-four years ago today, I preached the first time I'd ever preached. My first sermon was the first sermon here. We were meeting in an old theater building. There's a picture of it. It was a dilapidated old building left over from World War II when the airport out here at that time was a small military base, and that was the base chapel and the base theater and anything else they wanted to draw a crowd to. After three weeks of visiting people and talking to people in Florence, I'd invited scores of people. Eighteen people, though, showed up. Among them are Harry and Dorothy Cook. Where are y'all? Will you stand? They are here this morning. I think somewhere there they are, right back there. They've been sitting on the back seat for 50 years. (laughs) But they're always on the seat. That's what counts, isn't it? God bless y'all. Just remain standing for a moment. Larry Gore was there. He was a 14-year-old boy, and he's still here. And Norma Monroe 
the best preacher's wife that ever was born was there. And she's still here too, believe it or not, after all those years. And I was there. And we're the only ones, the 18 that we know of that remain. Maybe some have moved away. Many have died. But we were there on that first day together. Now, uh, y'all remain standing just a moment. Five months later, on May in May 1970, we organized the church with 28 charter members. And how many of those charter members are here today? I know there are two more than those of us standing. Slim and Angie Turbyville, wherever you are, will you stand today? And after 54 years, they're still here today, praise the Lord. And thank you all for your faithfulness through the years. You notice that everybody sat in the back row in those days. And, um, but they're here. That's what counts, isn't it? And I wonder how many of you ever attended a church service in the theater building. Quite a number of you remain, I think, stand if you ever attended one time in the old theater building. And there they are popping up around the building here. We have a, three or four in the choir. And so those are the people that started and have remained through all these years. Give them a good hand, if you will. Thank you all. I have the outline of the first sermon I ever preached and the outline of the first sermon ever preached here. And you see a copy of it right there. And it's from the passage here in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 22. The text is, what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? I had an old Thompson Chain Reference Bible, brown in color, and I preached out of this for about 10 years, and uh, so I have the outline and the Bible from that day 54 years ago that I certainly treasure and uh, wouldn't take anything for those. And I read that text to those 18 people. I didn't know whether those people were saved or they were Christians or not. I had no idea. But I preached an evangelistic message from that text. Today, I'm going to use the same text. What shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? A lot has changed. In 54 years, it's a long way from that old theater building that was torn down after we left because the county condemned it and said it wasn't fit for occupation. And we were the last, I think, inhabitors of it. But God has blessed us, and you can look around and see physically His blessings upon us. To show you how much things have changed, though, until about a year and a half ago, there was a 10 by 10 map that was hung on the wall at this end of the foyer right behind the couch there. It was a huge world map. We used it to point people to missions and show where our missionaries were. We had a pen in it for each missionary we supported. But we took the map down a year and a half ago or so because the map became obsolete. There had been so much change in the world that 20 nations now existed that are now existed that were not on that map when we put it up 15 or 20 years ago. During the life of our church, nine presidents have come and gone. The Florence area has changed a great deal in good ways and bad. And so today, 
we're here still looking at that first text of Scripture, what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? I wonder, is that text still relevant today? Do you think that's a relevant text for this morning? 54 years later, 2023, in a new century from where we were when we started at that time, I think it's a very relevant question. The reason I do, let's just go back and let me set the scene here for you a little bit. It was before the dawn or in the early morning hours when Jesus was delivered to Pilate. He had been interrogated all night long by the council in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, 70 men who, oversee, who oversaw the affairs of state. But they served under the Romans, of course. And they had met with him and accused him of blasphemy, of saying that he was God, which he had said, and he is God. But they had brought him before the council because of those statements. And the council, charging him with blasphemy, wanted a death penalty. But the Jews didn't have the power to enact a death penalty. To, to, to get a death penalty, they had to take him before the Romans. They only had the power of life and death. And so they bring him to Pilate. And he stands there with his life hanging in the balance before this Roman, almost like a dictator in those times. He was the governor of that province. And I want to say to you that uh, Jesus stood there and Pilate asked that audience, what will, you, what will I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? But he was turning the decision, as it were, over to the crowd because for him to politically crucify Jesus Christ, he knew that he would make a certain segment mad. And if he didn't, he would make a certain segment mad. So he had a, he had a real political enigma here. He was caught on the horns of a real dilemma. Whatever he would do would be wrong to a group of people. So he was trying to absolve himself the responsibility of making the decision. And so that day when Pilate asked that question, what should I do with Jesus, who is the Christ? Or 54 years ago, when I stood and preached to a little handful of people the first sermon a little preacher had ever preached, but it's just as relevant this morning. You see, Aristotle had a, a parable that he used often. He said, if you want to know what it is to be wet, do not ask a fish, because that's all he knows. By the time he knows anything different, it's too late. And you know, there is such wisdom in that and we didn't realize when that little group of 18 people met on that frosty morning 54 years ago, we didn't realize the changes that were already happening in the world around us. We thought we were just going to start a Baptist church and God would do some great things. We didn't realize the shift in the culture. The ground was moving under us at that time, and we were not even aware of it because we were the fish swimming in our own comfortable waters at that time. You see, in 1969, cultural Christianity, a Christianity where people are born, they hear the Bible, and they grow up in church, and they sort of affirm it, but they don't really give their whole heart to it. Cultural Christianity was sort of the norm in those days. The Bible still had authority in the culture, but not a great deal, but it did 
when it was pragmatically called for. We know that uh, there was a certain standard of morality that was expected of people in those days that nobody even expects anymore. We know that evil, when people did evil in 1969, they didn't flaunt it. I drove, I pulled out on Palmetto Street the other day, and there was a pickup truck in front of me, and it had the, the, the vilest, uh, filthy word that we use in the English language on there attached to the President of the United States in letters that big on the tailgate driving it down the street. You wouldn't have done that in 1969. Had you done that in 1969, I don't know what would have happened, but you would have, been, um, you would have not been allowed to do that. So there was a certain standard of outward morality. If people weren't saved, they tried to act like it in those days. If they weren't true Christians, they it kind of put on a, a, a facade. I called it in those days the religion of nice. I came in one day and told my wife after talking to people and being a little discouraged, I said, everybody I talk to is just nice, just nice, nice, nice. They're nicing me to death. I can't find an unsaved person in this town, Norma. Everybody in this town thinks they've been saved at least once, some of them several. And so... It was the religion of nice. It was the gospel of being good. If you were good and you were nice, you were okay. And I found out that my work was cut out for me. But what I didn't realize was America was changing so fast that the religion of nice was not going to pass for very much longer, that secularism was on the march in our nation, that cultural Christianity that most people were practicing didn't have the strength to resist and to stand alone against the onslaughts of secularism that were coming. Like the morning mist, in a few years, cultural Christianity burned off in America, and people even stopped making the pretense any longer. And today, America is what we call a post-Christian culture, a post-Christian culture. We used to be Christian. Nobody in their right mind looking around today could say that America is a Christian nation any longer. There was a time we said it was. Nobody could say that today. This is a pagan nation, in fact, in many, many ways. And Jesus had said to us as Christians, man shall not live by bread alone. What he meant by bread was the material needs of life. Man can't live just by the physical alone. He is a spiritual being. He needs a relationship with his maker, with God. And so uh, secularism came along, and it began to say in the public mind of people, well, you can live without God. You don't have to have God in your life to have a meaningful and a and a fulfilled life. And the country moved rapidly toward a secular mindset. The Bible was put out of the public schools. Prayer was no longer allowed in public public assemblies in many ways. And in many, many other ways, secularism came roaring into American culture. The first casualty of secularism always is truth. Truth. And we traded the truth of God as found in the Scriptures. 
We traded the truth of God for a lie, and the lie is that man can live a fulfilled and satisfied life without God. Secularism took over in such a manner that no longer was there a moral authority. No longer was there a final authority to appeal to about what is right and what is wrong. And truth was twisted and stretched like a rubber band. And since we had no moral compass as a country, everything became permissible. In the 60s, the the sexual revolution. And then later, the drug culture came. And then the breakdown of the family. And then the mainstreaming of porn. And then the legalization of abortion. And then the LGBTQ movement and same-sex marriage. And we mainstreamed in America degeneracy. It became the norm. It became acceptable. Nobody fought against it and opposed it much anymore because we were in that post-Christian era. A Christian counselor told me one day, And I quoted him, I quote him, a post-Christian culture hurts and kills people. You can count on it, preacher. Something is going to happen in every family that will bring tremendous pain. They don't need your condemnation. They need hope and the hope that only Jesus Christ can give to them. And so today, I want to say to you, I believe that this question What are you going to do with Jesus? Calling people to decide for the Lord Jesus Christ to make a choice to give their life to Him, I still believe that's the most relevant subject I could pick today to speak to you about. It's a relevant question. Secondly, it's a personal question. It's a personal question. Pilate's question that day was to a big crowd of people. The historians say there was probably about 3,000 people that viewed the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Pilate looked at that crowd. What will I do with Jesus then who is called the Christ? Meaning, what are you going to do with him? What are we going to do with him here this night in Jerusalem? And though he asked the question of a crowd, every person in that audience had to answer that question. And listen to me this morning. I'm speaking to a crowd of people, a great throng of people. But I want to ask you, what are you going to do with the Lord Jesus Christ in your life? No matter who you are, old or young, black or white, rich or poor, saved or lost, what are you doing with Jesus Christ right now in your life? What are you going to do? I'm asking you a personal question. Christians talk about a personal relationship with Christ For years, I'd listen to people say that. I didn't say that myself a great deal because I thought, I don't know what what they really mean by that. And I thought about it, and then I think I know what people mean, or I hope they mean this. When we say that Christianity or salvation is having a personal relationship with Christ, we mean we didn't inherit it from our parents. They may have been godly people, but that doesn't mean we're saved. We didn't get it because we went through the rituals of a church somewhere and were baptized as an unconscious infant. That didn't give us a personal relationship. That was something 
imposed upon us almost, as it were, by our family or by a church. Salvation is not inherited. God has no grandchildren. Either we're his child or we're not his child. And a personal relationship with Jesus Christ then means that I come face to face with Jesus. I come to him personally on my own, willfully, intentionally, understandingly, voluntarily. And I trust him for my eternal destiny. I put my confidence in what he did that night that I'm preaching from here in the Bible, I put my confidence in what he did that night as he suffered on the cross for me and paid the penalty for my sins, and I'm trusting that for my eternal destiny. It is so serious, I'm trusting that to keep me out of hell. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, was witnessing on the street in Chicago, and he asked a man about his soul. And the man looked at him, and he said, that's personal. And D.L. Moody said, well, that's why I'm asking you personally. And that's, that's the issue today. That's why I'm asking you personally. What will you do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? It's the most important question anybody could ever ask you, I promise you. And I ask you to think about that on this 54th anniversary. It's a relevant question. It's a personal question. Number three, it's a universal question. Because you see, that's a question for all people who've ever lived. Regardless of their race, regardless of their culture, regardless of their background, It's for everybody. It's for all places, whether you live in China or whether you live in America or whether you live in Latin America. It doesn't matter where you live. You can live in the biggest house on the hill or you can live in a hovel somewhere, but you've got to answer that question. What are you going to do with Jesus who is called the Christ? It's for all people. It's for all places. It's for all times. It was for the apostles It was for the Roman world. It was for the medieval world in the Middle Ages. It's for the modern world today as we sit here in a church house in the United States. If you're a Christian today, I want to ask you a question. What will you do with Jesus? Or maybe more appropriately, if you're saved, what are you doing with Jesus? What are you doing with him? You see, Jesus, we have so Americanized the Bible and Christianity it hardly resembles New Testament Christianity anymore. anymore. We, we look at it through an American paradigm, an American pair of glasses. And if we're not careful, we interpret the Bible in that way. And like that fish who's never been out of the water and can't tell you what it's really like to be wet, we look at the Bible and, and, and we Americanize it and we can't tell, well, what is New Testament Christianity and what is Americanized Christianity? that we've grown accustomed to all around us here. So the question is, what did you do with Jesus? You see, Jesus did not suffer under Pilate so Americans could just fed him into their busy schedule about once a week. When you take Jesus on, it's a lifestyle. It's a worldview. 
It's a way of looking at and interpreting everything in life, the way I work, the way I have a family, the way I relate to people, my social life, my financial life, my, my work life, my vocational life. It, 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 you don't stick Jesus onto your life and think that that's real Christianity, ladies and gentlemen. So you see, it's a universal question it's for everybody. Romans 14 and 9 says, for this end was Christ born, that he might be Lord. And if you're a Christian today, I know God's will for you in general, and the will of God for every believer in this church today, and everyone watching on television and listening wherever you are, let me tell you, God's will for you, if you are a child of God, if you have been saved, God's will for you is that Jesus be the Lord of your life. And Lord means boss. Lord means he's the CEO. Lord means that he's in charge. The Lord means that when you make decisions, that you take him into your counsel, and every decision is viewed from the lens of his teaching. Lordship of Jesus Christ. I know that's not a popular subject in 2023. I know that's not being preached a great deal. We, we want to accommodate people. We want to say, oh, just, just live your life. Just kind of stick Jesus on. Do your best and come whenever you can. No, 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 my friend. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord of the living and he's Lord of the dead. Romans 14 teaches me. A.W. Tozer is one of the great thinkers of Christianity. He died just a few years ago. He described the attitude of evangelistic churches. That'd be churches like ours toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll read to you a fairly lengthy little statement, but please hear it if you're a professing Christian today, because if America doesn't get a hold of this, I, we don't have much hope for the future in terms of Christianity. Hear me, please, Christian. Jesus Christ has almost no authority at all among the groups that call themselves by his name, Dr. Tozer wrote. The position of Christ in the gospel churches may be likened to that of a king in a limited constitutional monarchy. The king in such a country is no more than a traditional rallying point, a pleasant symbol of unity and loyalty like the flag or the national anthem. He's a figurehead. He is applauded. He's feted. He's supported but his real authority is negligible. Nominally, he is head over all, but in every crisis, someone else makes the decisions. On formal occasions, the king appears in his royal attire to deliver a tame, colorless speech put into his mouth by the real rulers of the country. The whole thing may be no more than just a good-natured make-believe, but it is rooted in antiquity it is a lot of fun, and no one wants to give it up. Christ is now, in fact, little more than a beloved symbol. All hail the power of Jesus' name as the church's national anthem. The cross is her official flag, but in day-by-day -day conduct of her members, someone else, not Christ, makes the decision. The idea that the man, Jesus Christ, has absolute and final authority over the whole church and over all of its members 
in every detail of their lives is simply not now accepted as true by the rank and file of evangelical Christians, end of quote. Pretty heavy words, huh? That Jesus Christ is more or less a figurehead. He's like the anthem, the flag. But having real authority in the details of how I'm raising my children, what I'm doing with my time, how I spend my money, how I think, he really doesn't have much of a place in all of that. Jesus, to his disciples, he said this, if you're my disciple, I expect you to be all in. You know why you're sitting in a beautiful multi-million dollar auditorium that's paid for in the middle of 52 acres with schools and television ministries and all the different things going on here? You know why? Because God gave us through the years a group of people who were all in. I got that from Dabo Sweeney, but he got that from Jesus. All in. All in. Are you all in for Jesus, Christian? You see, the future of this church is no better than the measurement of the number of people here who are all in. He didn't call us to sit and soak and sour. He called us to be soldiers of the cross. He called us to be the people who stand in possibly this last generation. He called us to be strong and stalwarts. Oh, to be loving and kind and gracious, but at the same time, to have backbones like a railroad beam when it comes to standing for His truth. That's where we are. In a post-Christian world, a weak culture Cultural Christianity will not be able to survive in the times we're in. He said we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, not a part of it, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, and then to love our neighbor as ourselves. And boy, that very thought produces a people that cannot be stopped. The world can't stop them. The flesh can't stop them. The devil can't stop them. There's such strength and such power in that compared to the insipid, weak Christianity that is so prevalent in our world today. Is He the Lord of your life? Is He in first place? Second place? Third place? Does He have a place? I call on you today to answer that question of Pilate. If you're a Christian, and especially if you're a member of our church, what will I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Make Him Lord of your life. Make Him Lord in everything. Love Him with your whole heart and soul and mind, and you'll never look back with one regret in this life. And those are, for those of you who are not saved, the non-Christian, your eternal destiny, my friend, is going to be determined by that question. What are you going to do with the Lord Jesus Christ in this life? The gospel 
is that he went to the cross. He died a bloody, violent, sacrificial death. He took your place. You and I should have had to pay for our sins, but he paid for the sins of the whole world. And he says, now, if you repent of your sins and put your faith and trust in me, I'll give you eternal life, everlasting life. It's not something you work for. My baptizing you won't help that process. Joining a church won't help. Living a good moral life won't save you. It is faith in what Jesus Christ did for you in those six lonely hours that he hung there on that cross. Lastly, it's an inescapable question. If you look in verse 24 there in your Bible, Pilate called for a basin of water, and they brought it out, and he washed his hands. And he said, I'm innocent of the blood of this man. No, he wasn't. He could have stopped it. He didn't stop it. He was, politic, he was playing the politi- political expediency card. And he could have stopped it, but he didn't. He tried to wash his hands of Jesus. My goodness. Is there anybody here today trying to wash your hands of Jesus? It won't work, my friend. It's inescapable. You will meet, you will meet him. Pilate thought he could get rid of Jesus that way. Not long after, he, w- he was demoted by the Caesar. Not long after that, he was sent to Sweden to a lesser post. And there, in despair and hopelessness, he committed suicide. We know that from history. You can't escape Jesus Christ. You can't ignore him. If you've never received him today, come and trust him as your Savior. In the Civil War, there was a poem written by James Russell Lowell. It was on everybody's lips in that time. Poems used to be very popular. They're not so much now. It was called the present crisis. And here's the words of it. Once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide in the strife of truth with falsehood for the good or evil side. Truth is forever on the scaffold. Wrong is forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future and behind the dim unknown Standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his eye. Decide, I am going to serve and live for Jesus. What will you do with Jesus? Ask yourself, what will I do with Jesus today? Put your trust in him if you never have. And if you have, serve him with all of your heart. Bow your head with me in prayer, please.